Again, as I said, as we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 24, I titled this sermon today, Foolishness from the Lack of Thanksgiving. Foolishness from the Lack of Thanksgiving. I'm going to, as we go over the message, I hope to show that what drives this man named Rehoboam with his foolish decision is actually a lack of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God and lack of thanksgiving to the people that is under his leadership. Let me say this real quick. This message, I think, is relevant for all. Okay? For those who are young, if you think you're young, raise your hand. That's everyone, right? If you're under 60 or 65, raise your hand, okay? If 60s is the new 40s, then that's all of us, okay? This message is relevant because if you look at this passage, you'll notice this passage mentioned young men three different times. Look with me in verses 8. It mentioned about Rehoboam's friends who were young men in verse 8. But not only in verses 8, look with me in verses 10. It also mentioned a second time, young men. And then another time in verses 14, young men. So three different instances it mentioned young men. So I want to say for those who are young, and I'm looking here at Rebecca, Abigail, Hannah, at Melody, at Gloria, at Eric, at Phineas, at Corbin, at Michaela, at Aaron. Uh, you know, uh, well, all of this, uh, you know, with... Uh, you know, with all the children, okay? All of this, this applies for all. This also applies for those who are adults. Because as we grow older, we have more responsibilities, true or not. Okay? I remember this week, I was talking to my daughters, and they're like, ah, when we're going to be adults, we're going to be doing a lot of things we don't want, that's boring, and there's paperwork and everything. This is what Abigail said. Is it okay I say this, Abigail? Okay. And I was like, okay, there's more responsibilities, true or not. And this message is relevant for all of us as adults because we see an adult in this picture that should be an adult with responsibilities of leading others as a king, true or not. So this message is relevant for all, okay? So raise your hand, everyone raise your hand and say, this is the word of God for me. Okay? So with this, the root problem we're going to see with the story today is the lack of thanksgiving. Is the lack of thanksgiving. And having a life where you don't have thanksgiving is going to produce problems. And we're going to see today, what our purpose today is, we're going to learn that a lack of thanksgiving can lead us to make foolish decisions. A lack of thanksgiving heart will lead to a bunch of foolish decisions. Why are we going to learn this? So that we would actually cultivate a life of thanksgiving to God and also trust in Him today. That's the purpose, okay? Let me state again the purpose of this message. Today we're going to learn that a lack of thanksgiving can lead us to make foolish decisions. A lack of thanksgiving can lead us to making foolish decisions. So that we, so that we would learn to be thankful and trust in God today. Okay? And today we're going to see five points. How many points? Five points, okay? So for the kids that are taking notes, you guys can write these down as one of the three things you guys learn, Okay? Point number one, these, five po- these are the five points, and I know these sentences are a little bit longer. Sometimes I feel the more Puritans I read, the more my sermon outline sounds like the long Puritans sentences, okay? Point number one, when we are not thankful, we can be harsh. Point number one, when we are not thankful, we can be harsh. When we are not thankful, we can be harsh, Okay? Uh, for the young ones, uh, harsh is spelled H-A-R-S-H. That means being 
hard or rough with other people, okay? Point number one, when we are not thankful, we can be harsh. Point number two, when we are not thankful, we listen to foolish counsel. When we are not thankful, we listen to foolish counsel. When we are not thankful, we listen to foolish counsel. When we are not thankful, we listen to foolish counsel. Point number three. When we're not thankful, we do not understand what is going on. When we are not thankful, we do not understand what is going on. When we are not thankful, we do not understand what is going on. Point number four. When we are not thankful, we can be self-destructive. When we are not thankful, we can be self-destructive. When we are not thankful, we can be self-destructive. And then point number five. When we are not thankful, we do not see the wisdom from the Bible. When we are not thankful, we do not see wisdom from the Bible. When we are not thankful, we do not see wisdom from the Bible. I'll repeat those five points later on, also even as we go over. But for the sake of time, I'm going to dive into the study right now, okay? So in the context, this is what's happening is, this should be Israel's third king. It should be Israel's third king. If you remember Israel's history, at first they did not have any kings. Then they had a king named Saul. Who was probably not a good example. But then God raised a second king from another family named David. Say David. David. Remember a few months ago we learned about the story about David versus Goliath? That David became a king. And back in the day, kings would often have their sons be king. And this is supposed to be Solomon is king. Actually, what am I saying? This should be the fourth king of Israel. Okay, After Solomon... He ruled, he built the temple. He was described as the wisest man. And then the fourth king, his son, Rehoboam, should be king. And we're going to see Rehoboam ruin it very terribly. And at this point, because of his foolish decision, because he has the lack of thanksgiving to God, you're going to see his kingdom, that was originally made out of 12 tribes of Israel, be split. Ten tribes will leave. And really only one tribe truly followed. And that's where their tribal clan and everything came from. The tribe of Judah. And when we see this today, we see the root cause of all this is the foolishness of someone who is young. And really what driving as a root cause is he forgot about God. And he's not thankful to God. And he's not thankful for the people. And he's not thankful for the wise counselors before him. It is with this we're going to see five points. Of the foolish decision that results when one is foolish because one has no thanksgiving towards God. Let's look at point number one. When we are not thankful, we can be harsh. Okay? When we are not thankful, we can be harsh. So he is, if you notice in verses one, it says, Rehoboam went to Shechem. So this is every time in. So, I know today, sometimes you hear progressive media talks about January 6th was like the worst thing that ever happened in U.S. history. 
I think that's kind of short-sighted when you consider there's real insurrection that happened in 1861 and all these other things, okay? But back then, historically, in most history of countries, whenever a king dies, whenever there's a change of regime, it's often very turbulent. And you see this in this instance. Because you already saw it's turbulent. Because when Rehoboam wants to be king, where did he go to try to be inaugurated as king? In verses 1, what town did it say? Shechem. I know sometimes when you read the Word of God, it's always important when we read the Word of God to say, let's look at the geography, let's look at the background because it matters. Because when you look at verse 1, we can easily pass the word Shechem. Well, where Shechem was, was actually not in Israel. Correction, not in Judah. Not even near Jerusalem. In fact, it was in the northern tribes. Okay? Shechem was far away from the center of power, if you will, from Jerusalem. If I could give an example, let's just say someone wants to be president. Instead of being inaugurated in Washington, D.C., let's just say there's a lot of protests. Suddenly, let's just say in the South, just, just historical reference, there's nothing, don't read into this anything politically. Let's just say instead of the inauguration, when you say, I want to be president, instead of meeting Washington, D.C. to have that happen, you go down south, I don't know, to Mobile, Alabama, or something like that, right? If you do that, then you say, okay, you will notice there's a power dynamic going on here. That the center of the power is if he has to say, I want to be king, and he realizes he has to go over there, you start seeing that the center of power, most of the people are saying, hey, most of the time when kings say, hey, come here, meet with me, you go where king meets. When the people says, no, I'm not coming over there, you come over here, you already saw the balance of powers tipping towards what? The people. Okay? So Shechem is not where kings usually meet to be uh, with that. Okay? So there's already a palace. There's all of this thing. So you already see there's a, a balance of power tipping. And you see here what ended up happening is the people, when they came over, they're saying, one of the things they say to them, to Rehoboam is in verse 4. Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke when he put on us and we will serve you. Now if you read the context of 1 Kings, you will see in earlier chapters that in chapter 3, in chapter 4, Solomon, Rehoboam's father, he had to build a temple. To build a temple requires a lot of what? Work. Requires a lot of centralizing of powers. In fact, he not only built the palace, the correction, he not only built the temple, he also built his temple. What am I saying? He not only built the temple, he also built his palace. And all of this requires heavy taxes of the people. Not only taxes of what they could give each tribe each month. There's 12 tribes. Each month would have this. And most of the brunt of this would have been the northern tribes. Because there's 10 of them. Right? 10 months. They were to fulfill all these things. Bringing horses. Having, providing thousands upon tens of thousands of men to build the tabernacle. Correction, the temple temple and also to build the palace so when they said these words in verses 4 that when they said to him hey your father was harsh on us please be less harsh we know everything in first kings all those details that people could easily skip over of all these taxes of all these tribes giving thousands of men is to tell us to say that when the people said hey your father was harsh is this true or not fact check this is true their fathers were actually very harsh on the people the amount that Solomon has done upon the people. So we see this here. And this would have been an unprecedented level ever before. Okay? 
there's ever before with all this much of labor. So we see here, what we see is this yoke was heavy. It caused them, could you imagine if you were a farmer? You probably hope, okay, I hope we, our tribe would not be in certain months. But then when you think about it, the work of farming is hard. And then suddenly to be pulled away for a month to do hard labor with that. Now, let me say this also as well. That's not to say it's not important to build a tabernacle. Does that make sense? Or actually transitioning from the tabernacle to the tent. Uh, uh, what am I saying? To the temple. I'm uh, misspeaking. Speaking of whatever tonight, okay? All this is to say this is important. But also it came at a cost. And even as we go over, I also think Solomon was wise, but we already saw even early in his life, there was already cracks spiritually, even with his leadership, as we'll go over with the last point also as well. So you see that there is counsel here, okay? That there was a harshness. And also notice also as well in verses 10. Remember when the father, uh, the young man counseled this young man who's now king, wanted to be king? says, hey, they're acknowledging that the father's yoke is hard. So there's no denial of this. The work of it is hard. If you read all those information of all the horses that's provided in a time period where horses of scarcity, where all these men were provided everything else, this is a time, if you were to be alive in this time period, you would have been taxed greatly. I know sometimes we talk about Solomon's golden age. And it was a golden age. But realize it came at a great cost to the people also as well. And yet, when the Rehoboam responds, when Rehoboam responds, which we'll go over more in details later on, you see with the response here, that is, he rather than acknowledge the people gratefully and say, thank you for all that you've done for my father. Thank you all that you've done for God. Instead of any appreciation, any thanksgiving to the people, what does he do? He responds with harshness. He responds with harshness. If we are not thankful to God, it's probably very easy to not be thankful for people. I think the easiest person to be, I think the easiest person to love, objectively speaking, is actually God. He's never done us any wrong or sinned against us. Anything that he does that we don't want, actually still always for our good. That's his promise. If we can't love God, it's very hard to love other people. Now, God, I know it's hard to love God because of our sin. But I'm saying objectively speaking, without taking account of any, our sinful nature, really, truly the most lovely person of all is God. Talk to me now. True or not? And if we don't love God, if we're not thankful to God, it's very hard to be thankful to people. Thankful for those. In fact, you would have a lifestyle of expectations of others. That others are obligated to do all these things for us. And when we don't get what we want, we could easily complain. And when we take it to its logical conclusion, we will be harsh with other people. Here was a young man who was foolish. And his foolishness stemmed from his root cause of what? The lack of thanksgiving. Instead of saying, wow, my father did all these things that was unprecedented at that time to do all these things because of the purpose of God and thank you for your service. He decided to go on the route and say, no, I'm entitled to what you guys give to our family. 
I'm entitled to all your services. I'm entitled to all these things. And because you're not going to give them to me, I'm going to be harsh. The lack of thanksgiving makes a person harsh. And the reverse is also true. A thankful spirit is a gentle spirit. True or not? A gentle spirit is often driven by the motivation of understanding God's mercy. As, I, as even this month, uh, when we went over with those booklets as we give out, and I encourage you guys to still read it because Thanksgiving is not just a holiday, but it's a cultivated lifestyle. One of the, one of the word of attribute of God I noticed that's recurring again and again from all these different Puritan writers and historical reform preachers and everything else is the word mercy. We would never be thankful to God and thankful to others if we don't understand mercy. That's the attribute of God that drives thanksgiving. If you understand how much mercy you've been given, you will be a thankful person. If you understand how much grace, if you understand that none of these things we are entitled to, you would be what? One who will be thankful. John MacArthur often said that what? Hard preaching produces soft hearts. Soft preaching produces what? Hardened hearts. We want to be hard on sin. Sin is a purpose. We want to show the sinfulness of sin. Not just hellfire brimstone, but to show that sinfulness of sin, that it violates and goes against God. Because if you understand that, then you understand truly how deep is God's mercy. And it will produce in you a heart of thanksgiving. Get the heart of thanksgiving towards God. And also I think you will be more gracious with other people. And we see in this instance, what drives this young man to be harsh, ultimately, is his lack of thanksgiving. That people went all out to be able to help his father. And even the lavishness of his childhood growing up in this palace, and all these things, he does not see. This was built out of a gratitude of men who poured their labor, who took time from their ordinary lives to be able to make these things all glorious. Here was a man who was ungracious, unthankful, and would be harsh. You guys know anyone at work that is critical? Have a critical spirit? Nothing they ever, nothing, no matter what, progress and everything else, they always see in the most negative, cynical lights. Right? You guys get a bonus. At work. He's like, well, the CEO takes most of it anyways. We're entitled anyway. You're like, man, no matter what this guy is always what? Unthankful and critical. And if you look at someone that's uncritical, you often realize in their life there's nothing. Very little thing they would consider thankful. And they often have the most entitled spirit. Brothers and sisters, I bring this up to say, let this not be us. Sometimes, even in marriages and family, if there is a spirit of harshness, I think we must ask even the root causes, not just only just to say, hey, treat the other person more nice. You have to go down to the root of whether or not they're thankful to God. And I actually think addressing at the root really is where we solve the problem, right? Is with that. I do believe one of the benefits of a Christian marriage I do believe one of the benefits of really truly reading biblical truths, whether biblical secondary source literature or the Word of God, it will cultivate you to be someone that is thankful. And that will spill over to your marriage and elsewhere. By the way, for those who are kids, 
For those who are younger, I know oftentimes around Christmas, we often think about what we want for Christmas, right? All these things, give me, give me, give me, give me, right? But I also want to encourage you guys. If you guys realize, if you guys are born in America, you guys are the 1% already. You guys realize this in the world? You guys, being born in the U.S., you are the 1% of world history, right? Even, uh, I was just thinking about the orphans when we went to Nepal. When we went to Nepal. We gave, um, my daughter sent like these bookmarks, little paper bookmarks, and they were just wondering what they were. Right? They were wondering, is it a sticker? But it doesn't really stick that well. And they finally asked me. They were just kind of embarrassed. And I said, what is this? And I said, oh, this is our bookmark. And I was actually seeing, they actually read later on, and they actually use those bookmarks, right? I bring it up to say something like that as simple. as like, wow, I just didn't think that was just a side thing. We would not even put that in a, a stocking for some of us, right? But consider this. We ought to be people that are thankful. We ought to be the most thankful. And I'm saying this as someone that's also part of this, right? I'm, a, I'm ABC. I'm an American-born Chinese, right? Even as someone, if we're even born poor or whatever else in America, man, the amount of clothes we have, man, is more than even some in other places, okay? Let's consider the blessing. And we're harsh with our parents. For those, I hope none of us here are harsh with our parents. For those who are younger. But if you are, realize maybe it's an issue that you have no thanksgiving to God. And by the way, this is an attitude that we could also have as an adult. Also as well. We see that when we are not thankful, we can be harsh. And make really foolish decisions. Let's go to point number two. When we are not thankful, we are prone to foolish counsel. When we are not thankful, we listen to what? Foolish counsel. Counsel means advice. I actually think if we're not thankful, we listen to foolish advice. You might say, Jimmy, how does not thank- having thankful lead us to foolish advice is this? When we're not thankful, we feel entitled. When we're not thankful to God and say our whole purpose is to glorify God, is to thank God, then it will be we substitute God as the object of praise and glory. And we put ourselves in, true or not. And when it's about our ego, when it's about our pride, guess what ends up happening? If it's all about our ego and pride, when someone comes over and gives us foolish advice, by the way, when we come to someone that is really sneaky like a snake, gives us advice that feeds our flesh, we could easily be taken over, right? To be easily seduced by wrong counsel. Look with this real quick. This is taught in verses 8 to 11. Okay? Verses 8 to 11. It says he forsook the counsel of the elders. And by the way, earlier the, um, earlier the counsel of the older men who was under Solomon said, hey, don't be harsh with the people. Right? If you look earlier in verses 6, he consulted the elders. And by the way, these were the advisors for Solomon. They probably learned wisdom from Solomon, who's his dad, who's the wisest man on earth. They gave a wise advice to say, hey, you know what? Let the people, if you look at verses uh, 7, hey, answer the people and say, hey, Answer the requests, and they will serve you forever. Say, I will serve them, and they'll serve you forever. They're wise to realize, okay, you are not your dad. You don't have the same charisma, the same power, whatever else. You have to acknowledge this, right? Part of leadership is acknowledging your limitations, true or not. And then you should have done this. But instead, he, isn't it so weird to ask advice for someone that's wise and then not to take it? That is just dripping with irony. Then, if you notice in verse 8, he goes to the young men. Who grew up with him and served him. And he asked in verses 9, 
What counsel do you give me that we may answer those people who have spoken? Lighten the yoke which your father has put on us. By the way, if you look at the conversation in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 and onwards, this theme of lightening your yoke, they keep on quoting again and again the phrase of the people. Apparently that phrase really rubbed Rehoboam the wrong way. He really did not like that. Okay? And look at what the young men said in verse 10. It says, and by the way, notice again it says young men a second time. I think it's for emphasis here, right? There's this opposite of contrast. Elders, who are his dad's old advisors, and younger. There's a contrast here. And there's an opposite, uh, opposite policy recommendations. One recommend mercy and grace. The other one recommend harshness. Look at verses 9. Your father make our yoke heavy. Now make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to him. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Actually, if I could just say this, this is kind of crass language. We're going to keep it rated G for godliness. Amen? Okay? But if we're going to make it rated R for reform, right, what this is, is he's talking about his dad's body part and saying, mine is bigger. And by the way, that word little ones is not often translated as fingers. Okay? I think this is pretty crude language here. Okay? But what he's trying to do is he's just being so sick, being so harsh, and even at a sense being very crash. And this is the advice given to who? By his young friends, his peers. I hope our parents, for those who are younger, tell us, hey, be wise not to always listen to someone that's your friend that might not be as wise. True or not? Does any of our parents, for those who are younger than 18, ever tell us to, make, to be wise in making friends? Yes or no? By the way, does, does everyone that's friendly, does that mean they always should be your friends? No, that's what reality is. You have to be very careful. Because what we see here is these friends of his that he had since childhood were not wise and guess what happened? Gave him very foolish advice. And they probably feed his ego. It says, you know what? Your dad was strong but in order for them to respect you you need to be even more harsh than your dad. Is that smart or wise? No. Okay? Never smart or wise. Never smart or wise. Realize that. When I was in seminary, one of my professors that I think heavily influenced me was a guy named Dr. Montoya. I feel like he's a Hispanic Charles Spurgeon, okay? When he preaches, when it's funny, it makes everyone double laughter. It's really rare to look and see John MacArthur laughing, okay? But man, when he makes it emotional, man, there's like no one even like make any sound. One of his advice that he often say with discipleship, hey, is your first year of church... All these young, all you guys are young yo-yos. You guys want to bring all these reform in one year. But realize it takes seven years to take a church turn around. I remember thinking like, oh man, Dr. Montoya also have wisdom. Is it really seven years? Then I realized after a ministry of ten years, like, oh yeah, he was right. It's seven years that you finally see some of these things that you desire changing around. And you would always say, and all these young guys would say, oh, I went to this church. I'm trying to bring all these things. And I'm, I'm already got fired. And he was like, hey, you got to go slow. Right? The first year, don't bring any change. Just observe and go with the status quo as much as possible. I remember thinking, all these young guys, no, no, no. But uh, no, that's different. That doesn't apply for me. And Dr. Montoya would always be sitting there 
for Discipleship Lab, and he'll always hold his Bibles, and he'll be stroking his mustache and says, hmm, tell me how it turns out, right, very gently. And then just a few weeks later, you find out, oh, man, it comes like, Dr. Montoya, you were right. I was thinking, wow. Same thing for those who get, guys that are young. Realize this counsel. By the way, this is a counsel also as well for those of us who are what? Older. Some of you guys are in the point in your life where you might be in your career are seen as a leader of your industry. Well, with leadership, also realize we also want to be one who is wise. And be careful of seeking counsel of those who are foolish. One of the things about being leaders is suddenly people will flock to you. And sometimes they'll say a lot of things. And they want to be a friend and they want to be all these things. But be also be very careful with your ego being stroked. When you are full of pride, you're obviously not having a thankful spirit. It's about yourself, right? And that also makes you, what? Susceptible to foolish counsels. So realize this point, okay? For those who are young and those who are older, realize the lack of thanksgiving is an issue that is truly with us. And by the way, just before you think, oh, I'm too smart for that, I also think his father's life, Rehoboam's father, Solomon, was an example of that. He's described as wise when he was young. But what happened in 1 Kings chapter 11? The chapter previously before chapter 12. He married all these women and guess what happened? All these things, all these polygamous marriage, all these things he didn't care, married all these foreign women, everything else, guess what happened? His heart was led astray by them. Because it was all about satisfying himself instead of being thankful. And I point this out to say, never ever think we're too smart to be tricked by those around us with foolish counsel. And the more people give you foolish counsel, the more you better have cultivated an attitude of what? Of thanksgiving. Of realizing everything that your success is, your mercy is not because of anything you've done. And may you trust in God and be a thankful person. For those who are young, the earlier you know this, the better. So that you do not learn this the hard way. Amen? Let us go to point number three. When we are not thankful, we don't understand what's truly going on. Okay? Sometimes when someone's full of pride, when they're not thankful to God, when they're full of pride, they, think they do not evaluate situation clearly. If you understand the biblical evaluation of any success, is it comes from God ultimately. That should lead you to be much more humble. And that also leads you to evaluate situation more clearly. Of what it is, your contribution, and what it is, there's factors beyond your control. And what it is, others that help you along the way. And you see this issue, is that Rehoboam is one, because he's lacked thanksgiving of God, he's all about his pride. He lacks the reality and eyes to see what is truly the situation? After all, he's already moved all the way up there to Shechem to try to have the ten tribe recognize him as king. But he didn't acknowledge it. Because of his young men advice, bad counsel, he thought he was really that powerful. Which lead to him misinterpreting the situation and lead to a tragic, to a tragic incident in verses 18 to 20. Look with me in verses 18 to 20. So this is after the people curse him and say, Hey, you know, we don't want anything to do with King David anymore. We're going to break off. We're going to be our own people. And they walked away, basically. And here he is standing there, still thinking he's king. That he's large and in charge. So you think, I'm going to show who's in charge. I'm going to show who's the boss. In verses 
18. King Rehoboam, and I love how he even mentioned the narrator, mentioned the name, Adoram, who was over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death. To death. Could you imagine? He says, you know what? I'm going to tell you to go to work because I'm the king. So he decided to send his usual manager. And what happened to the manager? He got killed. That's stoned to death. And King Rehoboam suddenly realized, oh, oh, I totally miscalculated the situation. What did he do now? He realized he's not even in his own southern land where everyone is for him. He's in northern territory, right? He's in Shechem. He suddenly realized, oh, if they could stone that guy to death because of me, then maybe it's time for me to escape. But think about how much hubris, how much pride drives him. How much because of pride, obviously a symptom of that uh, is that he's a lack of thanksgiving, right? And lead him to this foolish situation where he's not understanding circumstances. That any situation earlier before, because he's able to rule, is because of God's mercy and because of God's grace. And because of God's sovereignty. Suddenly in this situation he realized, uh-oh, now, he's, as a result, he led to the death of someone that was one of his eight. And he realized, oh, oh, I am really that weak and powerful. And suddenly, he is on the run. By the way, did it have to be in this situation? No. He could have followed the wise counsel of those men. The elders saying, hey, part of power is not just only hard power. But there's a place of what? Soft power also as well. True or not? Yes. But he did not see any of this. And suddenly, he's on the run. I don't want to be political. I don't want to be political. Where we live in a post-2020 age where everything gets political real fast, right? But I can't help but to see illustrations of this even today in our world. It's recorded and I don't want to risk anything, but we know there's a big country east of, west of Taiwan, okay? That could also say, hey, we're going to keep everything locked down. We're going to keep everything locked down, all out. We're going to stamp out certain virus and sickness all throughout, and we're going to have the power in everything. But we also realize there's a limit of what people could go. We think of even people that could start wars, true or not. By the way, just before we think about this is criticism of Russia, this is also true of the United States, right? Starting wars with bad counsels without realizing, hey, there's a limitation. And also the reality that an enemy has a, also has the vote of when and who wins and when war ends. I bring this up is to say that if you are not thankful to God, if you do not understand, when you're thankful to God, you're presupposing everything is by God's mercy and grace. That there are things beyond your control that God has control. And I think that leads you to be more humble in interpreting situations and interpreting people. And the hardest thing to interpret, I often think, is the human terrain. People could easily be fickle, but also be strong and strengthened of any moment. We need to realize our limitations. So we need to realize that if you're not thankful, you're never truly understanding, interpreting the situations correctly. And that often makes what? A poor leader. True or not. I do think some of the best leaders are those that are humble, realize their limitation, and also realize, hey, there's some things beyond my power, and there's also the factors of others. Okay? This is where I do think as application for those who are older, and even for those younger, there's a place for reading good biographies, especially good critical biographies. For myself, I do like reading biographies of generals. I feel often the, most, the best generals in history are those that realize 
They are not that strong. They realize their weakness. And they realize they depend upon other people. And they need to navigate certain personnel and uh, personality to be able to get things done. So for those who are younger, if you really want to be wise and smart and understand the situation, start by realizing everything is God's control. Anything good that you have is given from God. And begin by being thankful. And I actually think that lens will see our situation and everything more correctly. By the way, I think the more we see our situation correctly, the more we will grieve over the sinfulness of the world, but the more we are also more joyful and thankful because we understand God's mercy and grace. Let's go to point number four. When we are not thankful, when we are not thankful, we are self-destructive, right? Look at verses 21. Ray Boehm suddenly realized, oh, oh I, I lost all these tribes. Maybe I should go to war. In his delusion, he's thinking this could be solved militarily. And he even mentioned in verse 21, he was able to bring with the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 choice men who were warriors. That might seem impressive until you realize that's just two tribes. And the other ten tribes have far more of a population. And then we not only see this, but if you see, in, if we don't have to turn the but in 2 Samuel 24 verse 9, it actually mentioned that there was a time David was able to gather 800,000 men. And if you subtract that, just number from 800,000 to 180,000, you realize that outnumbering is what, 6 or 7 to 1. And usually in modern warfare today, in the West, uh, quota they try to have any uh, um, operation is 3 to 1 ratio for victory, right? And with this, this is surely certain defeat. And you see here what it is, is this guy is just self-destructive. If he went, it would have been off of his head. Not to mention, they would probably be conquered also as well. And yet God intervened. God intervened in verses 22 to 24 by sending a prophet and saying, Hey, don't do this. This is God's will because of your sin and also the sin of your father, Solomon. And we see here, because of, this, because of lack of thanksgiving, people self-destroy themselves. Often, all the time, because of pride, true or not. They make foolish decisions at school, with family, with friends, and at work, and at church. But don't forget the root cause of this is a lack of thanksgiving. You see, the way we fight our pride, pride is a very hard thing to fight, true or not. Pride can manifest with boasting, but it could also manifest with false humility, true or not. I know Victor used to give this illustration whenever he teaches Sunday school, whenever he talks about false humility, he often talks about there's a deacon at a church, and there's a story he always says. He has that you know, corny little smile, he always says this, right? Where he says, there's a guy at a church that is the deacon, the guy that's most humblest, the pastor give him the ribbon, and the most humble, but next week afterward, the pastor had to take away because he had so much pride from, from of all of thinking he was the most humble, right? Pride is hard to fight, true or not. Pride is the last sin we would fight. Pride is the last sin that will give up until we go to glory. But how do we fight this? I actually think instead of saying, don't be prideful, don't be prideful, don't be prideful. Right? When someone says, oh wow, you did a good job with your math homework. And they say, no, 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 I deserve an F. When you really got an A and you, did, you really were the best one in class. We don't want false, 
We don't want to lie in the sake of trying to fight pride. So how do you fight this? I actually think the way you fight pride is to be thankful. You can acknowledge, yes, God is working through me. Yes, I'm able to accomplish this. But it's because of God's mercy and grace. So you don't have to have false humility or lie. Or lie to yourself. But in all that you do, all that success you might have, everything else, you would be thankful to God. For the circumstance, the control, for the wisdom, the skill set, whatever else it is, you are truly thankful to God. Listen, you cannot fight pride without thanksgiving. In fact, that's the true way to fight against pride. We need to realize the way to avoid the self-destructive path is to go before God and realize His mercy and grace and, ha- and pray, Lord God, give me an eyes that are filled with thanksgiving and praise so that I would not be self-destructive. So let's go to point number four. And point number, f- oh, correction, point number five. Point number five we're looking at is when we are not thankful, we do not see the wisdom in the Bible. Remember, this king had two advisors, two different advice, two opposite ones, right? How do you, how do you, what do you do when the advice is so opposite? One says, be harsh, and one says, be gentle. I think we often, we should always testing by the word of what? God. And I think this is point number five is I actually think his root problem is because he lacks thanksgiving to God. He do not see the value of God's word. Now you might say, Jimmy, where do you get this from this, from this passage? Because it says nothing about God's word. And that's true. It doesn't say anything from God's word. That's what's the root of his problem. He does not see the value. And before you think there's an argu- a fallacious argument from silence, the Bible makes it very clear that kings should know the Bible and the law of God. Turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. Serve me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, so I could catch my breath and drink water. Josh, in happy big boy voice, could you read Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 for us so that it could be recorded on sermon audio that could hear you read in loud, pronounced voice? Thank you, Josh. Thank you. What he read here is, this is a qualification for kings. They have to sit down and copy the first five books of the Bible. So they, they would know the laws of God and what to do as king. And by the way, they don't just copy it once. And by the way, they have to do it. They can't just have someone else write it, right? They can't just speak it. Fortunately, back then, they have no like, audio thing that transcribed things. Right? Hey, Siri, could you copy this down? Right? None of that. He has to write it personally himself. And not only that, he has to also study this continuously. <laughs> Now, when it comes to these two groups of advisors, he should have adjudicated that with the Word of God. But I don't think he appreciated God's Word. I don't think he was thankful to God that God gave him a guide, the Word of God, to judge the policy recommendations of his advisors. Because if he did, he would see clearly what would God say. Now, put your pinky or thumb in Deuteronomy 17, okay? And turn with me real quick, also as well, to First. Uh, to First Kings chapter, First uh, Kings chapter eleven. Okay, I want to make this observation. 
Okay? I want to make this observation. Um, in 1 Kings, actually what I'm saying, 1 Kings chapter 10. Okay? If you guys look, and this is describing his dad's life. Okay? His dad, Solomon. Okay? If you look at the end of 1 Kings chapter 10, look with me real quick, if you guys can, in verses 26 and 29. It says, Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. And it, by the way, chariots back then were like their version of main battle tanks, right? How many of them did he add in verse 26? Talk to me. 1,400. How many horsemen? In uh, 1 Kings uh, 10, sorry. 1 Kings 10, verse 26. 12,000 horsemen, okay? That's a lot. And then it goes on, okay? But if you guys turn back with me to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, if you guys can. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. This talks about kings. What God does not want kings to do. It says, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause his people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord said to you, You shall not again return that way. Solomon had a lot of what? Horses and chariots. But God's word says what? Not to do that. I actually think Solomon's downfall. Before you even read about the woman, his downfall already began there. He gathered all these horses, all these things. Now, if this is the son, Rehoboam, he read this word and wrote, copied this down, and said, don't have horses and everything else involved taxing the people, right? 12,000 horses, 1,000 per tribe in a time and age where there's not a lot of horses. He realized, oh, I should not be rough on the people. But also, moreover, look with me also as well in verses 17. He should not multiply wives for himself, his hearts will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold. Should kings have a lot of silver and gold? No. And then turn with me real quick. Again, back to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 27. The kings made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore. Okay? By the way, the silver would have been from tax from the people. We read this as like, whoa, glorious empire. But according to Deuteronomy 17, 16, verse, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, by the way, did you guys notice? In 1 Kings chapter 10, there's line upon line, chariot in the first verse. Next verse is about silver. And yet, Deuteronomy 17 prohibits chariots and also what else? A lot of uh, oh, silver. Then you realize what Solomon did as kings is what? Was not as wise. Was God merciful? Who Solomon? The answer is yes. But you should not presume a policy on mercy in the sense of the, the exception. Rather, as a general principle, he should obey and not be harsh with the people and want more silver and want more chariots. But if you look, look back with me in Deuteronomy 17, 17, the last one that's mentioned is what? Is, uh, the other one it mentions in the middle of verse 17, shall not have multiple wives. Isn't it so sad that when you look at 1 Kings 11, you see he finally has, the person with the most wives in the Bible ever is Solomon. By the way, his Hebrew name sounds weird. It's, not, it's Slomo, right? That's what it is, Solomon. We call it Solomon, sounds more cool. But he, in Hebrew, it's Slomo, okay? But in 1 Kings 11, that's when he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Is this a problem? Yes. But so many times, I think a lot of preachers, when they preach 1 Kings 10, they preach that last part of the chariots, of the silver. They say, oh, this is a great thing. But then when they get to 1 Kings 11, no, 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 not multiple wives. But they don't see that the trio of sin that the king should not do 
is actually all these three things. Not gather a lot of silver, which involves heavy taxation of the people, and not also gather chariots. And if Rehoboam read the Bible, he will realize, oh no, God was merciful to my father. But I should not pursue the same policy. God had great exception, yes, because my father built the, uh, the temple. But when he saw the advisors, between those that say more harsh, tax the people more, or those that say be merciful, if he read the word of God, if he appreciated Instead of saying, oh, yeah, I have to copy down the word of God. I, yeah, I don't want to do this. But he, if he had a spirit of thanksgiving, he would realize, whoa, God was merciful to Solomon, my dad. God was merciful to me as his son. And I need to be one who will be merciful. And I would pick the wise decision, which is to not sin against God by having even more chariots, more women, and even more Silver and gold and taxation. In other words, listen, listen. The root of his problem, ultimately, is a lack of thanksgiving for God's word. He saw no relevance of the word of God in his life. Would it not be so sad that we could live in America with all the Bible websites out there, with all the Bible apps out there, with all the teaching and preaching of God's word, Throughout the week, and we could still have a famine of God's word. Not just weekly, but also monthly, also as well. And by the way, let me say this also as well. There will be a time where God will finally say, Hey, if this is not what you want, then God will pull the plug. And that will lead you to the folly of more of this. And listen, we have to take a hard look at ourselves and not uh, take it for granted the preaching and the teaching of God's word will be forever. That there will be a time where God will give over to what apostates want. And may I say this also as well as emphasis. Are we thankful for the teaching and the preaching and also the hearing and the reading and the resources of God's word? Because if not, God will bring judgment and often we think judgment means right away judging will bring enemies and the Philistines and all that and Babylonians. But God's judgment, as we see in the New Testament, often means giving in, giving to the people of what they truly want. And the judgment begins there. But there is grace. If we turn to Christ today and understand how much He's died and loved us, and we understand the message of His Word, we will be the most grateful of all people. And when you understand that grace, you'll be one who will not be harsh. You'll be one who will not seek foolish counsel, but wise counsel. You'll be one who understands cir- circumstances and situations, even when others do not. You'll be one that will not be on a path of self-destruction. And you'll be one who will love the Word and savor it. And grow with joy from loving the Word. May we look at these and see the symptoms, but may we run towards Christ to ask for forgiveness. And therefore, once we're forgiven, to be a thankful people that is different than the rest of the world. Let us close in a word of prayer.